We all know that, that sometimes what appears to be true on the outside is not always true on the inside. There was once a, uh, a, a man decided to become a, a, a big patron, a donor to a, to a large zoo, and he was getting a, a guided tour of that zoo for his donations. And as they went along the tour, they came to an elephant enclosure, and they didn't see an elephant in there, but there was a, there was a man dressed in a zoo uniform in there just crying, just bawling. And the, the tour guide let his new friend know, like, uh, our oldest elephant that lived in there had died. And the new donor was really touched by that. It's like, oh, it's so cool that this guy was so connected to that elephant, and the tour guide said, oh, no, 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 that's the guy that has to dig the grave. That's what that, that is. See, what appears to be true on the outside isn't always true on the inside. You can't always judge a book by its cover. Well, when it comes to being a Christian, we should be able to tell. You know, we can't Always, we don't behave like we should, but we ought to be able to tell. Where we're at in the book of Philippians, uh, we've just read last week a, a song, a hymn. We called it the, the hymn of him, where Paul said of Jesus that though he existed in the form of God, He did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped or hung on to, but instead Jesus emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave. And understanding that word for form is important to understanding that hymn. Because what Paul is teaching is that even though Jesus existed from eternity past, always in the form of God, and that didn't mean the shape of God, It doesn't mean the outward appearance exactly. What that means is his outward appearance matched the reality of what was inside. There was no hypocrisy. So he had the outward appearance of God because on the inside, he actually was God, is God. The same is also true that when Jesus let go of that outward appearance of divinity, and temporarily, and came to earth, he took on the form of a slave. And what that means is the same. Jesus didn't just appear to be, or just merely look like a bond servant or a slave. He looked like that because he actually became one. The humble servant first of God the Father, and the humble servant of his fellow human beings, even you and me. And the reason Paul told us that hymn about the humility of Jesus that led to the obedience of Jesus, obedience to death, even on a cross, is because Paul wants us to be like that. Jesus is our example. Paul is still teaching us this from 127. Conduct yourselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that starts, according to Paul, with humility. Having that accurate assessment 
of myself. I see myself the way God sees me. So not as the lowest, not as the worstest, not as garbage. But I see myself as a child of God. But I see my sin when I sin accurately. But I can confess that, repent of that. And I am others-focused. I see myself as Jesus saw Himself, a servant of God and other people. That's gospel humility. So that's what Paul is still talking about when we get to today's two verses. We're only going to look at two verses today. And whatever they say, they're still about how to conduct ourselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. It's still about following the example of Jesus in it. Humility that becomes obedience. So that's what we're still talking about while we read today's passage. Just two verses, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. And they read this way. Paul writes, So then, my beloved, my good friends, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who's at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. There's our passage. That's all we're going to study today, but there's so much in here. We're going to start just We're going to bite off the first part of verse 12 where Paul writes to his friends in Philippi, my dear friends or my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence. Paul starts with so then, or or some of the rest of our translations might say therefore, or something like that. That's important. It lets us know that what anything we read today is about or comes from what came before. Right? So we're still talking about that humility, uh, following the example of Christ. Paul told us, have the mind of Christ. Have the same attitude that Jesus had. And then he told us that poem that we just read part of. So this is still about that. Therefore, and Paul's going to be teaching, take on that gospel humility that Christ had that leads to obedience. And his friends apparently are doing a good job at least heading down that road. Paul says that in a cool way. He says, just like you have always obeyed, not only when I'm around, but also when I'm absent, Paul doesn't mean that the people in Philippi have always every second of every day done what is obedient. They never mess up. They don't sin anymore. That's not Paul's point. Paul's point is, you guys do Christianity You're living out your faith whether I'm in town or not. See, Paul wants his friends and I want us and God wants us to have obedience that comes from what is real on the inside, not just from outward motivation. You know the difference? Paul hints at a a big part of it. Here, would it be easier to be good if the Apostle Paul were in town? Like, nobody wants to get caught being a jerk while God's Apostle is right there in town. When you were a young person, maybe some of you still are a young person, was it easier to be good when your parents were in the room? Or your teachers? 
I used to do this. This is one of my tricks uh, as a teacher. I used to do this every year because there were times where I would have to leave the room and a, and a classroom full of kids would be left behind and terrible things can happen. So at the beginning of every year in each class, I would just I would act like I was leaving. I would just do it and say anything. I would just leave, walk down the hall, I'd sneak back by my door and just wait for somebody to be an idiot. And then I would come in the room and say, what are you doing? Just because I'm not here doesn't mean, right? It's easier to behave when there's an outward motivation to behave. When, when a couple is really struggling in their marriage and they begin to really get after each other in a mean way and they come in and they sit down and pastor, we need some help. And I said, well, tell me what's going on. They don't start calling each other the names in front of me that they call each other at home. Why? Because Pastor Matt's right there. And I don't want to do that while he's around. Paul says, you guys are doing this Christianity thing whether I'm in town or not. There's an inward reality that Christ has changed you folks in Philippi through your faith. And, and your obedience is coming from who God has made you on the inside. That's a good thing. That's a really good thing. That's what he's encouraging today. And he's going to encourage them to, to keep going in that direction where it's like the form of Christianity and that can be taken in a bad way. But like your outside behavior should match the inside reality of who you are in Christ. And Paul's going to encourage them that Encourage them to do that this way. He's going to tell them, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling can be a difficult clause to understand. So we're going to spend some time talking about what it means to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but as I often do, the first thing I want to do is talk about what this doesn't mean. I want to sort of cut the legs out from under some false things that it can sound maybe like something like what Paul might be meaning, but he's not. So first, what does this not mean? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling cannot be any kind of what I'll call works-based or works aided salvation. In other words, uh, it can sound like Paul is, might be saying something like this. I know you believe in Jesus, but you had better keep working really hard at this Christianity thing. You better find the religious things that you have to do and you better do them often enough in the right place at the right time. You had better make sure that your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. Otherwise, you never know. You should be motivated by fear and trembling that you're never doing enough for God to be okay with you. At the end of your life, you might find out He has changed His mind. You really didn't have what it takes. You really didn't do what was required. So, 
You get out there and work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That is not what Paul means. It, it just can't be. Because Paul can't say something that's directly the opposite of what he wrote to the Romans, to the Galatians, to the Ephesians, to any of the other uns that he wrote to. For example, first, just Christianity is not God's way of guilting you into good behavior. The church is not the place where we try to coerce good behavior out of naughty people. And it's certainly not meant to teach if you are not behaving at a certain level, you cannot be sure that God won't send you to hell in the end. How do I know? Well, in the book of Romans, that's a letter Paul wrote where he lays out most clearly what it means to believe this faith of ours. In Romans chapter 4, Paul wrote this, to the one who does not work, and those are good works, but instead believes in the one who declares ungodly people to be righteous, that person's faith is credited as righteousness. You see this? The one who does not do good works. Instead, the one who believes in a God who declares ungodly folks to be good. They're not actually good. God just declares them to be good. That person, the one who believes, his or her faith is credited as if it is righteousness. That, that's how people are rescued by God. Not by good things we do. By a good thing He did. Paul just says this over and over and over. The righteousness we get from God is not, we work hard, we do religious things, we do what it takes, we try really hard, we cut out our sin, and finally we get to a point where God says, now you're good enough. God saved us when we weren't ever close to good enough. That's why we call it being saved. It's a rescue effort. And it goes not to the one who works, but the one who believes Believes in a God who can take ungodly people like me and just declare us, gift us with a declaration of righteousness. Nobody is going to gain heaven or avoid hell based on their behavioral goodness. We get declared to be behaviorally good when we believe in Jesus Christ. And if you don't want to take Paul's word for it in Romans, take Jesus' word for it. Jesus, speaking about himself, in John 3, said this, the one who believes in me is not condemned. The one who does not believe has been condemned already. Why? Because he hasn't believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. I don't know. It can't get much clearer. The one who believes, it's declared to be righteous. The one who does not believe can can be as good as he wants. But it will never be enough. So this can't be what Paul is not saying, work for your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, he also, this can't be 
uh, I want to say that there's a legalistic look at this word, this verse, this clause. Work out your faith, your salvation with fear and trembling. Legalism, when I say legalism, here's what I mean. Legalism is the idea that I can somehow become more in God's eyes through my obedience and through my good works. And there is a there's a legalistic understanding of work out your salvation with fear and trembling that would go something like this. It's not works-based salvation, but it's something like this. I believed in Jesus and I think at the end of the day, because of my faith, God won't send me to hell. But in the meantime, God always exists with this idea of me where He really doesn't like me because I keep screwing up. I try and I try and I try and I can't, I can't be good enough. And so God, I just know he doesn't really like me. He will hold his nose and let me in like the cat door of heaven because I believed in Jesus. But if I'm honest, he don't like me. It's easy to feel like that. And so I'm afraid. I have this fear and trembling that God is always angry at me. And God doesn't want me around until I get myself cleaned up. It's easy to feel like that. It's false. Paul began his letter, the body of his letter to the Ephesians this way. Blessed or, or spoke well of. We talk good about God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ. That's such a fantastic verse of Scripture. Do you, do you notice the, the tense of the verbs there, like the order of events? Paul says, like, he begins his letter this way, Isn't God awesome? Because, why? Because He already has blessed us with Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ. I don't even know what that is, but I bet it's awesome. Right? And Paul did not say, isn't God good? Because he would really like to bless you with some good things. But we wait and see. I mean, you probably, I mean, let's be honest, you're probably not going to. That's not what he says. He says, isn't it awesome that he has blessed us. He's already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because of what Jesus already did. As a Christian, I'm not trying to work for my salvation. You know, if you have believed in Jesus Christ for your salvation, if you believe that when He went to the cross, He became your sin, and God poured out all of the punishment you really deserve for every bad thing you ever will do, if you believe that about Him, this wonderful trade-off happens. He became your sin, and when you believe in that, you become His righteousness. So that when God looks at you, he doesn't look 
at the good things you've done and the bad things you've done and tries to do some sort of algebraic equation to see how you come out. When he looks at you, he sees the blindingly white righteousness of Jesus Christ. And you don't deserve it. And neither do I. We can't improve on it. And the miracle of miracles, we can't like mess it up. You didn't get the righteousness of Christ from your behavior. You got it from faith in Jesus Christ. His, you didn't get it from your behavior. You got it from His. You didn't get it from your faithfulness. You got it from His. Has His faithfulness changed? Has His behavior changed? My behavior cannot mess up what my behavior did learn. So whatever Paul means by work out your salvation with fear and trembling, it is not work for your salvation. Work so that God will like you. Listen, God loves you. He loves you as much today as the day He saved you. And if your sin is keeping you from going toward God, that is a lie you are believing. Maybe you want to hang on to your sin more than you want to go be close to God. That can be true. But God is not, God is completely satisfied with your level of righteousness because it's His. He just wants you to walk exposed with Him. Be honest with Him. Go climb right up on His lap and tell Him what you've done again. And He wants you to work out that salvation with fear and trembling, which is not uh, coercion toward shame and guilt-induced obedience. So what is it? What does work out your salvation? We'll leave the fear and trembling part out for a second. What does it mean to work out your salvation? It doesn't mean work for your salvation. But work out your salvation. What does it mean? I, I read uh, one illustration of this. Somebody compared it to a math problem. You already have it. You've got to work it out. Nobody wants to talk about math problems, so we're not doing that one. Somebody else compared it to a mine. I like this better. Let's say you have a long-lost uncle, and he, you, you discover he had no heirs, and he left you some mine filled with something incredibly valuable. It's filled with diamonds. It's filled with gold. It's filled with four-by-eight sheets of plywood. Have you priced that stuff lately? Right? Something incredibly valuable. You got it. You own it. But if you want to get all the good out of it, it still takes some work. Like it's yours. You can't lose it. But if you want to get all the good out of it, it takes some work. I think working out our salvation is a little bit like that. Working out our salvation is taking the salvation we already have and putting it to work in our lives. We are rescued by God, by grace, a free gift that comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone. But again, faith is not the finish line of Christianity. Sometimes it's like, oh, we just want people to believe in Jesus. Oh, well, we're done. No, faith is the starter pistol of our Christianity, not the finish line. 
The, the, the overall goal is to glorify God. We will do that for all of eternity. We're supposed to be doing that now. We can't do that apart from faith at all. Once we have faith, we have the ability to glorify God. So, so Paul says, like, put that faith that you have, that salvation, like, let it out. It's true in your inner person. Mine that faith. Work it out. Let it out. Put it to work. Now, there, there is an aspect of our salvation that we do work for. Put your stones down. Let me explain. But as Christians, you know, salvation, being saved, and the Bible is used of, of different things, there may be a little different aspect of this. We are saved eternally from hell. We are saved from the eternal punishment of our sin by faith alone, in Christ alone, God's grace alone. We're clear on that? But if we will put our salvation to work in our lives, we can get saved from all kinds of stuff. Because sin, though it cannot keep me out of heaven, it can get me in a lot of trouble and cause a lot of heartache. And I can be saved from the earthly consequences my sin deserves by putting the salvation that I have to work in my life. I can be saved from a lot of embarrassment and heartache and financial trouble and who knows what all else. So allow your Christianity to save you from more than hell. Not that that wouldn't be enough. But the more I do this, the more I decide to believe, to trust, that Jesus should be Lord over my life. But like His way really is best. The most joy I will find is living life the way He tells me to live life. The more I believe that, the more I put that to, to work in my life. It is true in my inner man. But I have, excuse me, <coughs> I have this dead zombie, Matt Maxwell, that tries to crawl out of the grave he was buried in and compete with my inner man for control. Right? We all, as Christians, we drag around that corpse of the dead us that was crucified with Christ. The more that I will let my salvation, my inner man, be what works its way out in my behavior and my attitudes and my goals and my priorities, the more joy I will have, ultimately, ultimately, I think that's as best I can do it. My stab at describing or explaining what work out your salvation that you already have means. But what's it mean to do that with fear and trembling? Again, whatever this fear and trembling is, it is not dread that God's going to pull the rug out from under me when I finally die and stand before Him. I'm like, eh, Sorry. You're not getting in. It's not fear of hell or of condemnation from God, but we are supposed to 
put our salvation to work with fear and trembling. Um, I want to give sort of two aspects of looking at this. Jesus is our example of both. I, I want you to know this morning, Jesus worked out his salvation with fear and trembling. Here's how. Uh, first, what do you mean Jesus worked out his salvation? Jesus, did Jesus need saved? Yes. Did Jesus need saved from sin? Yes. It just wasn't his. Jesus became all of the sin of the entire world. Correct? When Jesus became a human being, um, did Jesus have to live just by trusting that what God said was best? Yes. Was he led by the Holy Spirit within him? Yes. Did Jesus live uh, by using his divine power to make life easy for him all the time? No. That's the whole temptation, by the way. If you know the temptation of Christ at the hands of Satan, like Matthew 4, um, the whole thing was Satan tempting Jesus to just stop being like a regular human being. If you're hungry, tell that rock to become bread and make yourself a sandwich. Right? Jump off this tall building and force God to catch you and minister. You don't have to be all human and live like the rest of these knotheads. And Jesus said, yes, I do. Because Jesus, humility under the Father, which led to obedience. He's our example. And part of Jesus' humility was he positioned himself under the Father. So that even though he was equal in nature to the Father, he was under the Father in the pecking order. He was submissive to the Father. So that in some ways, there's a fear and trembling of, I know, I trust He will save me in the end, but I do not want to disobey my Father. If that's true, that is true positionally about Jesus, who is always God for every second, that's so much more true for you and for me. And here's what I mean by that. We can be confident in our eternal salvation. We can be confident... But the God we bow before will not cast us into hell because He keeps His promises. But the one we bow before is still God. Who is, He is terrifying. We don't, want to have, we don't have to be scared of His terror anymore because Jesus stood in our place. But it's still Him. The best the best place I could explain this, I, I know I've used this one before years ago, but the, the, I think the most insightful look at this comes from C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe out of the Narnia series. My favorite line in the whole series comes from, if you know that story, the Pevensey children, they've just gone through the wardrobe and they're in this magical kingdom of Narnia and they're just learning about this guy named Aslan. And Aslan in the series is the Jesus character. Like it's an allegory. Okay, and so he is Christ. And they learn something when, they're, when they meet some new friends, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. They're talking beavers. I don't know what to tell you. Just go with it. Okay? And Mr. Beaver is talking to Susan Pevensey. And he says of Aslan, Mr. Beaver does, Aslan is, is a lion. He's the lion. 
He's the great lion. And Susan, with fear, goes like, oh my goodness. I, I thought he was a man. Is he safe? I'm going to be really scared if I have to meet a lion. Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Here's why I think that's so insightful. I can understand what I might feel like if suddenly I was in the cage approaching a lion. Even if I had been promised, that lion won't eat you. How would you feel? Because it's still a lion. We have a promise that God will not destroy us. But he is still the lion. He's the creator of lions. And he's the lion of Judah. He's so powerful and awesome. And one of the, so that even though we have these promises that he won't squash us like we deserve, because he squashed him like we deserve, we still should approach him with this reverence and this awe. Because after all, he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I love it. But there's another way. Another sense in which the way we work out our salvation is with fear and trembling. And that's this. Sometimes when we are working out our salvation, when we are putting this salvation that we already have to work in our lives, sometimes God's not the scary part. Sometimes everything else is. And we really see this with Jesus. Again, did Jesus have to be saved from sin? Yes, it just wasn't His. Did He have to trust I can go down that road and take what is coming to me and end up naked, dying on a cross and trust that you will save me from my sin. Jesus had to do that. Not from my sin, from that sin. Was there any fear and trembling involved with what, Je with what Jesus had to obey? You better believe it. You better believe it. Somebody remind me, where's Paul at when he's writing this letter? He's in prison. Was there ever any fear and trembling in Paul's life? Maybe what Paul is saying is, my friends, the, my beloved, he calls them, put this salvation to work in your life even when it's really scary. Because our obedience can save us from a lot of stuff we won't have to deal with but it will not save us from everything that is scary. Put your faith to work and be, be prepared to do it even when stuff gets really, really scary. And always remember, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is being able to do what is right even when you're scared. Sometimes the best we can do in obedience is do it with fear and trembling. This is so scary and this is so hard, but it is right and I know it will be worth it and I'm scared spitless of one foot in front of the other. I think it's comforting to know like, I don't have to be super Christian and, and feel like I'm never scared of anything. Sometimes the best we can do is work out this salvation while we're scared to death. 
Is that hard? Does that sound hard? It's hard. In fact, we can't even do it in some sense. Which is why Paul ends this little two-verse passage the way he does. He says, remember, it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Does God want us to do things that please him? Yes or no? Okay, thank you. Uh, Yes. Is it hard always to do things that please God? Because sometimes that contradicts what might please me right now. Right? Paul says, when you do have the desire to please God, where'd that desire come from? When you have the energy to keep going and doing what will please God, where'd you get that energy? God. It's really scary. It's really hard. Paul says, God's at work in you. God's at work in you to give you the desire to do what will please Him and the energy, the work to do what pleases Him. And that means even when we do something that pleases Him, we don't get to do the thing where, well, God's probably more pleased with me than He is with that gal over there. Because after all, look what I've been doing. Look what she's been doing. Paul says, God gave you the desire. God gave you the energy. God just enjoys bringing things that please Him out of ungodly people like you. This doesn't mean we don't work because God works. Uh, A guy named John Murray, the late John Murray, he described this idea this way. God working through us doesn't mean we don't work. Us working out our faith doesn't mean God doesn't work. We do work but only because God works. So, let me just, let me ask you this. I'm asking you as an individual. Has God changed you in your inner person? Like in your soul, through faith in Christ, if you believe He took the punishment and the condemnation you really did deserve. Do you believe that? If so, you you are not in your soul who you were. You have been changed. Let that change out. That's this passage. Put that salvation to work. But it's scary. It's scary to change habits. It's scary to disappoint people. Um, it's scary to be ridiculed, to be left out. It's scary to have difficult conversations. It can, this can be scary in a number of different ways. But I want to encourage you that the encouragement we get here is that God is at work in here. He will, he will, he will not make everything not scary. He, that's sorry. But He will give you the desire and the energy to do what pleases him if that is, if you'll get out of the way and let him. Sometimes the best you can do is one foot in front of the other. Scary stuff. Some, somebody has described walking by faith as 
putting your foot down through a, through a fog, and trusting that Christ will, will be the rock that catches your step. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Take that change that God has begun on the inside of you and put it to work in the rest of your life so you might do things with his help that please him. And maybe what Jesus said might be true that someone else would see your good works and, and praise their Father who's in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, your word once again. We thank you for the example of Christ. Even he had to work out his salvation with fear and trembling. He had to trust that you would come through for him in the end. That this difficult thing you had for him was actually what you had for him. And that it would be worth it in the end. And God, he is an example to us in that. You want us to work out our salvation that we have with fear and trembling, awe and reverence of you, but also just when life is scary, when life is difficult, when life is painful. We might see what we have been given as as what you have for us and that we might one foot in front of the other put the salvation we have to work, that you might accomplish through us what pleases you to your glory. We love you, Lord. Accomplish that in us in Jesus' name. Amen.